Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We're at that fortunate point in the quarter when we get the blessings of guest host Peterson Toscano of Citizens Climate Radio with his usual talent, insight, and panache. Peterson will fill you in on the names and details, but be ready for insights into the pros and cons of air conditioning, some nerdy info about renewable energy's environmental effects, and some young and older folks doing climate lobbying. Enjoy yourself with this episode of Spirit in Action, where Peterson takes us to a higher plane. Over to you, Peterson. Hello, Mark. Thanks for having me back on Spirit in Action. And for you listening to today's program, thank you so much for joining me. My protection team has grown this year. Since January, I've worked with Ruth Abraham and Lila Powell in creating Citizens Climate Radio episodes. You will hear these brilliant young women co-hosting with me as we take a deep dive into the wacky and dangerous world of air conditioning. It's bizarre. They also help me share the stories of four high school students who have become volunteer climate lobbyists. Their methods and successes will definitely inspire you. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the history of air conditioning. Sounds um, interesting, <laughs> right? <laughs> When the idea was first introduced, I was like, how cool could air conditioning really be? It's actually pretty fascinating, and its origins are more complex than you might imagine. Which is why we need three hosts. Peterson, you sat down with Eric Dean Wilson. He's the author of the book, After Cooling, on Freon, Global Warming, and the Terrible Cost of Comfort. Eric lives in New York City, and he has his roots in Memphis, Tennessee. Having lived in Memphis myself, I can attest to how air conditioning gets cranked up about half the year. The coldest summer of my life was in an office building in Memphis, Tennessee. Eric teaches creative writing to undergrads. He's an accomplished writer himself, having published essays, poems, and criticism in Time Magazine and Esquire, along with many creative writing journals. His book, After Cooling, is insightful, informative, and and often quite humorous. I would have assumed that air conditioning was one of those technologies that was inevitable, that we were always looking for, and that once we found it or once somebody invented it, people would say, oh, thank goodness, we've been waiting for this. I was surprised to find in my research that that is not true. Throughout the 19th century, really, um, and maybe early 20th century, the history of air conditioning is a history of false starts, of people coming very close to inventing, or in some cases, inventing air conditioning, and then people rejecting it or feeling very uncomfortable with the idea of thermal comfort. Really, a modern air conditioner does a few things. It can control the temperature, so both cool it and also, in some cases, heat it, so control the temperature in all ways. It can purify the air, so it can filter out unwanted particles. It can ventilate, so it can blow the air in a certain direction mechanically. And maybe uh, most crucially and most difficult of all is it can humidify or dehumidify the air. Once you can control humidity, you can really control the quality of the air. And it's particularly difficult to do, to wring moisture out of the air. Um, so if comfort wasn't the point of AC, then what was it for? Turns out, the creation of air conditioning, like so many things in the USA, is a familiar story. 
the true birth of air conditioning is really about money in sort of two ways. So the first publicly cooled space was not for private home comfort, was not for sort of the general public or something like that. It was for the stock traders on Wall Street. They had just built a new building, uh, the current building on 11 Broad Street. They realized that in the summer, the huge windows and the architecture of it would make the trading floor incredibly hot and stuffy. And they were in the habit of taking a break for the summer. But of course, when that happens, they lose a lot of money. So they contacted an engineer to work on an air cooling system to successfully cool the traders during the summer so that quite literally capital could flow. I feel like that's very telling that it wasn't so much about health as it was about money. And at the same time, the very same time, an engineer named Willis Carrier, who might sound familiar to a lot of people, the carrier of Carrier Air Conditioning, was put on the task of dehumidifying for factories. This was also very successful. The first project was also in New York, in Brooklyn, actually, for a printing press, because the humidity was making the ink for a printing press run. His task was to create a machine, essentially an air conditioner, that would dehumidify and cool so that the printing press could save a lot of money. Throughout the early 1900s, that's really what the main use of air conditioners was for, was in factory spaces. And again, not always to cool, sometimes to heat and to humidify. Like for instance, in tobacco factories, you wanted there to be a very moist, very hot air because otherwise the tobacco would flake and crack. But if you were, say, manufacturing movie film or chewing gum, and you'd want it to be very cold or else it would melt. The product dictated the ideal air conditions of the workspace. In a sense, there was also a component of air conditioning that was about human comfort, but it was human comfort so that they could work more efficiently to, again, increase profit. Wow, AC has changed so much since then, and it's everywhere now. Yeah, like that office I worked in in Memphis. <laughs> we actually found out where the thermostat was on the wall. And we figured out how to hack the system with a Ziploc bag of ice that we taped over the thermostat. The bosses uh, didn't like that at all. <laughs> I cannot imagine having to do all that to stay warm in the summer. The one place I always remember having to bring a sweater is to the movies. My movie uniform, per se, always involves a hoodie or a jacket at minimum. It's always freezing cold in there. Turns out movie theaters played a major role in the evolution of air conditioning. The general public was most likely to be introduced to air conditioning through the movie theater. One of the reasons why it wasn't in the home yet is because it was still awkward as a technology. It was hard to control. Part of what made air conditioning so exciting to sell was that on a very hot summer day, they would crank the air conditioning up so intensely so that you would feel it immediately like a like an icebox or like a freezer right when you walked in, which felt incredibly good for about five minutes. And then after that, it would be extremely cold for the rest of the movie. Let's take a look at how AC is a climate change issue. For one, on extremely hot days, AC is essential for people with respiratory diseases and the elderly. It's literally a lifesaver. But at the same time, air conditioning contributes directly to the warming of the planet. In most places, it runs on electricity that gets generated by fossil fuels. The more AC units run, the more greenhouse gas emissions increase. On the hottest days of the year, for some people, air conditioning is a lifesaver. Historically, the use of air conditioning has not been for survival. It's been for comfort. And the irony is that we've relied on it so much that it's made our planet hotter, not just air conditioning, but it's been 
implicated in the warming of the planet so that it now has become a tool for survival because we've made the planet hotter. Eric told me about a long history of dangerous substances. He also mentioned a quirky inventor who, in trying to fix one problem, created a much bigger one. His name was Thomas Midgley Jr., and he sort of um, lived up to the stereotype of a mad scientist. He was trained as a mechanical engineer, but he was put on projects that involved chemistry. So he'd had no formal training in chemistry. He was charismatic enough that his boss, Charles Kettering, put him on these chemical projects. The first one was to find a solution to gasoline knock. In the early days of automobile gasoline, a problem would happen where the car engines would knock. It would eat up a lot of the gasoline and it would make the engines really inefficient. And nobody knew how to fix it. Thomas Midgley actually came up with a solution for this, which ended up being leaded gasoline. But one of the ways he did it was that he just started pouring random chemicals into an engine to see whether they worked or not, which is something that you or I are perfectly qualified to do. <laughs> he had really no plan, and he probably went through about 100 of them. So this was kind of the Midgley method, where he just threw things around and saw if they stuck. So leaded gasoline was, even at the time, incredibly scandalous because everyone knew that it was toxic, um, including probably Midgley. But again, profit was driving the production of this. That kind of culminated in a bunch of reporters showing up at his office and saying, you know, this has lead in it and you're putting it out into the atmosphere. How do we know that this is safe for us to show reporters that it was perfectly safe, which it wasn't? He took a barrel of the leaded gasoline and dunked his hands in it and then washed his face in it and said, see, it's perfectly fine. Later, he got lead poisoning. An environmental historian was writing about Thomas Midgley and said that possibly no other organism, including cyanobacteria, has had a single greatest effect on the planet than Thomas Midgley Jr. And he was the guy tasked with working on improving air conditioning? From a public health standpoint, Thomas Midgley Jr., hoped to make air conditioning safer for people. And from a business standpoint, his innovations led to a booming air conditioning industry. There are a couple of refrigerants that were used, what are called the natural refrigerants in the early 1900s. Things like carbon dioxide, ammonia was super common, sulfur dioxide, methyl chloride, things like that. The problem with all of those, except for carbon dioxide, is that they were either poisonous or explosive or sometimes both. <laughs> so if you were in a movie theater, in the 1920s, and there was an ammonia leak, it was incredibly noxious. And, um, you know, kind of smells like urine, not a pleasant thing to sit through during a film, right? And not good for business. Carbon dioxide is totally safe. But the properties of it are tricky to use as a refrigerant because it has to be super pressurized, which we can actually do pretty well now, but we couldn't back then. Everyone at the time in the 20s and 30s, by everyone, I mean, companies who were making engineering equipment and air conditioners, things like General Electric, we're looking for a kind of miracle refrigerant. This miracle refrigerant was found by Thomas Midgley Jr. He invented what we now know as Freon, just a brand name. So it's a family of chemicals called chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs. The amazing thing about CFCs is that they were the perfect refrigerant. Chemically, they were perfectly suited because they were designed in a lab for refrigerating for being used in an air conditioner. They were also completely safe on a human level. You could sniff them. They were non-toxic. They were very stable. They didn't interact with other chemicals. They were not explosive. To all available evidence, this seemed incredibly safe. Once Freon was invented, that allowed air conditioning to expand to larger spaces and also more spaces for cheaper. So we have Thomas Midgley Jr. to thank for making AC go viral. Yeah. 
and this expansion turned out to be terrible for the planet and those of us living on it. They weren't nearly as safe as we thought. In the early 1970s, two atmospheric chemists named Mario Molina and Sherry Rowland sort of by accident figured out that CFCs had the potential to waft into the stratosphere, which is an upper level of the atmosphere where planes fly, where the ozone layer is. Um, It's a very thin layer of ozone molecules, and it is what one writer in the 1930s calls the only thing between us and speedy death. It is what protects us from the sun's most violent ultraviolet radiation by absorbing that radiation. Without it, our skin would burn within minutes outside. These two atmospheric chemists in the 70s realized that CFCs, because they were so stable and not interacting with anything, were just hanging around in the atmosphere until they got to the stratosphere, where they were messing up the whole planet's atmospheric chemistry and depleting the ozone layer. So suddenly, within sort of a matter of a decade, you had major ozone depletion that was appearing at the poles of the planet, uh, over Antarctica and then also the North Pole. During October and November, almost complete absence of ozone, which is extremely alarming. That story has a very sort of happy ending, or a, a pretty good ending, which is that because the UN organized talks to figure out what to do about it, they were able to come up with something called the Montreal Protocol, which is still the world's only legally binding international agreement to prevent environmental destruction from happening, or it actually happens. When I was learning about this, the history of this, I found that really inspiring because I thought, oh my goodness, we've actually done this already. True, it's not on the scale of carbon dioxide, it's not on the scale of climate change, but it could be. What I saw in this history of the Montreal Protocol, which I didn't really know a lot of, and as I began to learn about it, I realized that we, sort of as a planet, had already faced an unprecedented planetary threat. Through international negotiations, had actually come up with legislation that had phased down and then eventually phased out the use of these chemicals. By the 90s, this Montreal Protocol was so successful, businesses got on board, they realized they could make more money selling alternative chemicals. So again, profit is always sort of king under these sorts of problems. But it was more profitable for chemical companies to sell the alternatives. And really by the year 2000, major production of CFCs had stopped entirely. The ozone hole is still appearing at the poles, but it's way, way less than it used to be. And the core problem, the production of CFCs, has stopped. So that's fantastic. In his book and in the interview, Eric talks about the devastating price of comfort. The United States has kind of exported this model for comfort elsewhere to China, to India, to Indonesia. And right now, the United States is in the habit of criticizing those nations who are asking for the same comfort, even though we're not doing hardly anything. Eric also reveals the history of air conditioning and comfort is wrapped up in the USA's racist history. The history of eugenics in America, which America has a robust history of eugenics still, is uncomfortably intertwined with the history of air conditioning. From the earliest days of air conditioning, it has been systematically denied to the black population because of racist notions of biology. For instance, there was a common belief in the 18th and 19th century that enslaved Africans could endure temperatures and also pain a lot more than than white people. Um, That is, of course, false, but it was a justification for the way that they were being treated. 
comfort was systematically denied to them. This also shows up in the history of redlining communities in uh, New York. A great example of this is you know, the Upper West Side, which is historically a very middle-class white neighborhood, which is just really like 20 blocks from Harlem, which is historically a working and middle-class black neighborhood. Because of redlining and that racial segregation, 100 years ago, there was an investment in trees, shade infrastructure on the Upper West Side, but not in Harlem. The legacy of that, a century later, is still present so that you can walk just maybe 20 minutes from the Upper West Side and you can experience an almost 10 degree difference on a hot summer day. We are living through the history still of racial segregation. Even though redlining is different and we have more integrated neighborhoods, we're still living through that racist history. Wow, I never even thought about how shade affects the climate indoors. Right? And the fact that shade infrastructure differences in the Upper West Side and Harlem still impact residents today is shocking. So how are we supposed to combat this? What can we do? This was the most exciting part of Eric's book for me. He helps us see a future that doesn't rely on air conditioning for our comfort. It's a future that looks so attractive to me. One of the things I call for in the book is rather than focusing on individual comfort and individual survival, to really try to rethink our notion of comfort and think about collective comfort and collective survival, community survival. So things like how can we make our cities cooler without relying on air conditioning so much? Those are things like major tree planting campaigns to make our cities greener and also make access to green space easier and more equitable. In a place like New York, LA, Chicago, access to green space is a lot easier in wealthier and wider neighborhoods. That's a justice issue. We have to look at making our access to these shady neighborhoods, which can really help on a hot day, accessible to all. You can actually live happily under a very different model of community or values. And I think that's what I'm excited about and what I think is possible in the future. I'd love to see more green spaces in cities. And developing shade infrastructure sounds so cool. (laughs) No pun intended. The reality is, other places have plenty of ways of addressing heat and cooling spaces. Totally. I remember I studied abroad in London over the summer, and the buildings didn't have AC. We just always had our windows open or hung out in the basement on hotter days. It was still just as comfortable. Plus, having fresh air and switching up our hangout spots was honestly really nice. Building construction that keeps out the heat is nothing new. Last year, when I lived in South Africa, I was totally amazed at how our house stayed cool. With thick walls, shading on multiple sides of the house, and ventilation in the ceilings, we lived pretty comfortably without AC. I intern at the Brock Environmental Center. It's one of the world's greenest buildings and is located in Virginia Beach, which is the most populated city in Virginia. This totally changed the game for me because it showed me how self-reliant and environmentally friendly you can be while still being in a major city. The good news is that architects and designers are taking these construction considerations seriously. The best architects understand how to integrate the environment into the design of a building. So I have a lot of hope with the future of building design. And I don't think that we have to suffer through the coming warm years. I think that we can actually learn to live with our warming environment, perhaps less comfortably in the way that we think about it. But we should really ask ourselves whether the way we're living now is making for a more comfortable planet overall. So much depends on our actions and attitudes. Each month, we are now offering you, our listener, meaningful next steps for you to consider taking. Some of these are going to be personal choices and actions, while others are on a larger scale. 
So Ruth, after hearing Eric talk about the history of air conditioning and the future we need to co-create, what's the next step that you suggest? Here's my proposal. If green spaces are cooler, then they should be everywhere. Green spaces are known for their positive effect on mental health. I visited a friend in Austin, Texas, and I was pleasantly surprised by the amount of space reserved for trees and lawns. As we traveled around Austin, the green spaces made me fall in love with the city. They were seemingly infinite places to lounge and connect with others. So how can you start building a green space? You can start small and like a seedling, have your actions grow. My suggestion is to cool your living space with a plant or several. You can get house plants that release extra moisture into your rooms. Some of these include spider plants, jade, Boston ferns, and peace lilies. The plants help clean the air and cool things down. If you have a yard or green space on the sidewalk, see about planting a tree that provides cooling shade. You may need to connect with your municipality if the green space is part of a sidewalk. You can even get your neighborhood to join in on the effort. It's these collective small steps that bring us closer to climate solutions. How about you, Peterson? There are so many hacks we can use to alter the temperature in our homes, but I want to propose something more ambitious. I love the idea of changing systems. Besides your own home, consider a building where you spend lots of time. It might be your school or where you work, shop, or work out. In the summer, these spaces can have the air conditioning pumping so high. It initially feels good when you come in from the heat, but after 20 minutes, people start freezing. How about you begin a campaign to have the building operators increase the temperature by one or two degrees? In other words, lower the intensity of the air conditioning. Do a little research about who makes these decisions. Find out who else shares your concern. Maybe even figure out a cost analysis of how the building operators will save money by decreasing the amount of AC in the summer. Then use your volunteer lobbying skills to advocate for this change. We will have links in our Dig Deeper section of our show notes to help you with your next step. Visit cclusa.org slash radio. That's cclusa.org slash radio. Eric's book is After Cooling on Freon, Global Warming, and the Terrible Cost of Comfort. It's published by Simon & Schuster and is available wherever you get your books. You can also follow Eric on Twitter and Instagram at Eric Dean Wilson. That's at Eric Dean Wilson. And if you have ideas for cooling buildings and communities, email us radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. This month, we premiere a new section of our podcast. We love Tamara Stanton and the Resilience Corner. She's so encouraging. And don't worry, she'll be back on the show in the very near future. But today, we have a new corner that just opened on the show, The Nerd Corner. The Nerd Corner is hosted by Dana Nucitelli, Citizen Climate's research coordinator. He's an environmental scientist and climate journalist with a master's degree in physics. Dana is right. He's wicked smart, and he can help non-scientists like me understand the complex issues he writes about. Hi, I'm Dana Nucitelli, CCL Research Coordinator, and this is The Nerd Corner. I'm here to highlight some interesting new climate research for the nerds out there, and to make it understandable for the nerd curious. In this episode, we consider the question, 
Are clean technologies and renewable energies better for the environment than fossil fuels? The reality is, every technology has some level of climate and environmental impact, and this includes renewables. To make a solar panel or wind turbine or battery, we first need to mine the earth for minerals. We then manufacture them into a technological product, then we transport that product to its final home. So how do the impacts of these green options measure up to the impacts of the fossil fuel technologies they're replacing? There's one key difference between technologies powered by fossil fuels and the cleaner alternatives. When the energy comes from coal, oil, or gas, we're just burning those fossil fuels. That means we always have to extract more fossil fuels from the earth to provide more energy. It never ends. For example, humans mine and burn 8 billion tons of coal every single year. For comparison, the World Bank estimates that in order to make the clean technologies needed to meet the Paris climate targets, we'll need just 3.5 billion tons of minerals over the next 30 years. So, by transitioning to clean technologies, we can massively reduce our overall mining footprint. But how do clean technologies require mining at all? You see, we need to mine a lot of copper and zinc to make a wind turbine. Solar panels require copper and silicon. And to make batteries to store that clean energy, we need lithium and other metals. The good news is that mining only happens once. Once it's done, the solar panel just soaks up the sun, the wind turbine spins in the breeze, and the battery fills up on electrons that increasingly come from clean energy sources. And at the end of the product's life, most of its minerals can be recycled to make new solar panels, wind turbines, or batteries. In short, the answer is that it's ultimately better for the environment to deploy clean technologies today than to continue interminably mining, drilling, refining, transporting, and burning dirty fossil fuels. I'm Dana Nugitelli with The Nerd Corner. Thank you for being curious and for your commitment to climate progress. To join the discussion about climate science, technology, economics, and policy with CCL's research team, check out The Nerd Corner at cclusa.org slash nerd-corner. That's cclusa.org slash nerd-corner. I hope to see you there. Thank you, Dana. If you have a question for Dana, email us at radio at citizensclimate.org. That's radio at citizensclimate.org. We will make sure he gets your question. There's still plenty more to come. In the second half of today's show, you will hear how four high school students are determined to do more than just protest against climate change in action. They decided to speak directly to lawmakers face-to-face. And we'll get you right back to guest host Peterson Toscano and more of the great climate insights and how-tos of Citizens Climate Radio in just a moment. But rest assured that you'll find all about Spirit in Action on the northernspiritradio.org website, including links to today's guests and to yesteryear's guests and all kinds of other stuff. Help us out when you visit by posting a comment, sharing our programs with your friends, advocating that your community radio station carry us, or just by holding us in the light. And you can also make a donation on the northernspiritradio.org website and help us stay sustainable. Same goes for all those wonderful community radio stations all over the country. You help us make a difference. Now. Back to part two of today's Citizens Climate Radio, guest hosted by Peterson Toscano. I'm really excited about this episode. It's been in the works for months, and I'm also thrilled to welcome you, Ruth Abraham, as our co-host today. 
Thank you so much for having me. As a recent college graduate with aspirations of working on the Hill in environmental policy, I'm ready to answer our title's question. Are lobbyists really evil? In the USA, the political climate we hear about in the media, it's tense, contentious, and polarized. Many Americans, including myself, are concerned that special interest groups are setting the agenda with the help of lobbyists and huge campaign donations. Do citizens have any real power to voice their concerns and wishes? And what about those lobbyists I hear so much about? Who are they exactly and how much influence do they have? On today's show, we're featuring four guests. They are each high school students, three are from Washington State, and one of them is from Maine. They definitely have a thing or two to say about this topic. Sachi Sharma is from Bellevue, Washington. I'm very connected to my culture. I have Indian roots, so that's something that I enjoy talking about with people. It's a big part of my life at home and outside of home. I also play a lot of volleyball and I enjoy watching sports, so that's a really nice way to connect with people. Anna Shia also lives in Washington State. I'm a high school senior. I live on Mercer Island, which is by Seattle. I've lived here for about six years and then I spent my first 11 years in Shanghai and Beijing in China. A friend of both Sachi and Anna's is Brianna Dule. My parents are from Punjab. That's a really important identity that I have. I visited Punjab actually like five times. That's Punjab, India. But another really important, important like role in my life is just being a woman. There's a lot about being a woman that just like, if you don't identify as a woman yourself, you won't be able to understand these certain things. And from all the way on the other side of the USA is Cole Cochran from Saco, Maine. So I'm a high school senior right now, and my school has been very forgiving as I've been going through politics. I'm the uh, legislative director at Maine Youth Action, so I do a lot of my work through there. Ruth, you're younger than I am, so I don't know, you might disagree with me on this one, but... I have this assumption about high school students that they are typically idealistic and they have really strong opinions. Being not that far removed, I can say that's a fair assessment, but our passion is usually well-guided. Let's find out what they have to say about our question today. Are lobbyists evil? We first hear from Anna and Nicole. Well, since I am a lobbyist, I would have to say no. Um, I think there are a lot of really bad connotations surrounding lobbying. I definitely felt it when I first joined CCL, when I when I was like looking at the CCL website and it was like, oh, we lobby. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I really want to do this, but I'm really glad I did. I don't think lobbying is inherently evil. I think when you get a lot of money involved with it, it gets a little bit corrupt at times. What I love about CCL is how CCL is nonprofit. All of the lobbyists are volunteers and we're really just doing this because we care about it and we're not really like gaining financially out of it in any way. So no, I don't think lobbying is evil. I look at lobbyism as advocacy, right? It's just more hands-on, right? Because you have your grassroots advocacy where it's the rallies, the protests, right? The mobilization of the masses. And that's how you get the attention of the legislators. But who's going to carry that attention when the rallies and those protests start fading away? And that's where I see the lobbyists come in. And it's a, it's a delicate dynamic where we definitely don't want an overwhelming presence of how people see it as like elitist 
whispering in legislators' ears. When we have that grassroots advocacy pressuring those legislators, that's when the lobbyists come in and kind of start advocating on our behalf. Back in 2019, I was a college sophomore, and all I heard about was students protesting. Whether it was sit-ins or walkouts, marches, I never heard of anyone my age lobbying. Well, I think the thing is that, like, protesting, it definitely gets in the news. I mean, they provide these, like, amazing images and sound bites. But quietly, behind the scenes, some high school students have been opting for advocacy work. I do enjoy going to protests and seeing how many people, you know, care about the same issue as me. It's very nice to be able to visualize that. But for me, working online and getting the message out there feels a lot more comfortable. And I feel like I can reach more people through that work. It's more of a personal preference. Like, I like to be involved in the policy, understand the context, and kind of avoid any unintended consequences of well-intentioned policies up in the state house. I think a lot of people definitely want to be a part of the grassroots advocacy because that's what they see on the TV. But when you delve, like, even just one layer deeper, you realize there's this entire community that works together and partners together to make sure that the voices of the people that you hear on the streets can also be heard in the halls of the house. Within advocacy, you're able to understand the importance of compromise and the importance of being moderate. And there are some things where it is really important that it's like you don't give up and you don't sacrifice. Brianna shared that she hopes to be a lawyer one day. She actually traveled from Washington State all the way to Washington, D.C. She lobbied members of Congress and their staff. She learned a lot from that experience, including important lessons about diversity. Definitely had the fear of what am I going to (laughs) wear. I remember, um, since obviously I am a kid, I had to have an adult chaperone. And Gwen, uh, who leads the Washington youth team, so brilliant, so amazing, um, she accompanied me. I remember just like frantically texting her, asking her like what to wear. We need to make sure that we have a lot more people from different demographics helping and utilizing their voice. We need to spread this out and include a lot more different diverse groups who all really value the environment just as much as we do. Going to these D.C. congressional offices is no joke. Back in 2013, when I started volunteer lobbying, I was terrified the first few times I did it. The good news is that we can learn how to become confident in these situations. Before I joined CCL, I was very afraid of any type of public speaking. So those first couple lobby meetings, I was like terrified and I was like shaking and it was like, and it was good that it was on Zoom because being in person, I think would have been like so much, but it was really nice to see that like, I would be like super nervous beforehand, but then afterwards I'd feel like really good about it. And it was just nice to have all these constant opportunities to build more confidence, not only lobby meetings, but through like presentations to businesses and organizations in Washington um, about the same legislation. And then Also, we did this Washington State Legislator Project that was just tons of lobby meetings, really just having that constant exposure and then constantly talking about the same thing, too, I think also helped. And then also having the wonderful team, too, to present with. 
And it really made me feel better about public speaking. That was such a good message about confidence building. In a moment, Peterson and I are going to share some of the successes Sachi, Brianna, Anna, and Cole experienced. Yes, but I still have questions about our question. Are lobbyists evil? (gasps) These high schoolers, you know, they're passionate volunteers. They want to make the world a better place. But what about the actual paid lobbyists in Washington, D.C.? Are they the evil ones? To find out, I'm going to call one. Ugh, I'm always nervous. <laughs> Maybe he won't pick up. Oh, uh, this is Ben. Hey, Ben, this is Peterson from Citizens Climate Radio. Uh, I have a couple questions. You have a few seconds, minutes? I got a few minutes. Um, you live in Washington, D.C. Is it true you are a professional paid lobbyist? Uh, yes, I think I've been a registered lobbyist now for over 15 years. Wow, you like have to like register to be a lobbyist. There's all kinds of ethics filings and laws and regulations around being a registered lobbyist. And we have very specific reporting requirements for what we're doing and lobbying on. And if we're giving any campaign contributions, all those things have to be disclosed and you have to be registered. Wow. So what do you do? As a government affairs slash professional lobbyist, you know, we talk to members of Congress and their staffs, bills we'd like to see enacted, things we would not like to see enacted, crafting legislation, working with coalitions and other groups to advance wins for the climate is kind of our, our day-to-day. It usually entails a lot of meetings, both with Hill staff and with other organizations. Now for folks like me, not in the Beltway, like we hear lobbyists and it always sounds like there's like these huge corporations and fossil fuels companies with lots of money and that money influences politicians. And I know you're not sitting there with piles of cash. I know how CCL works. So um, what clout do you have to to connect with these lawmakers and to persuade them to consider the policies you're proposing? You really got to think of lobbyists as being more like lawyers, you know, a professional class that understands the way the legislative process works and uh, uses that knowledge to help various causes or clients. Every cause you could think of has pretty much some sort of lobbyist in their employ for reducing poverty, obviously on climate change, any cause you can think of, there's somebody working this. And the same thing goes for any industry also has to be represented by somebody in DC because the laws we pass affect businesses and people and having people in DC and a government Fair's role is one of the best ways to make sure that Congress understands the laws they make, what kind of impact they're having on that particular constituency or industry. So it's very important for everybody to have that representation. Going to your particular question on clout without money. Well, I mean, our clout really comes from our volunteers. It comes from the grassroots power of concerned citizens that are engaging with their members of Congress every day in a respectful, an educated fashion. People don't want to talk to me just because my charming personality. They want to interact with us and listen to us because we have an army of volunteers that really are concerned about getting something done on climate standing beside us. And so it doesn't really necessitate money to make a difference. For you, why Citizens Climate Lobby and why climate change? I think this is goes for a lot of people up here in DC. There are causes we care about. I really do think that 
Climate is one of the existential issues for our time. It's an everything issue. It affects our national security. It affects our economy. It affects people. It affects the places we live and work and raise our families. And so I can't think of a more important issue to be working on in, in Washington. But everybody does have, you know, the things that are most important to them. If you're lucky enough, you do get an opportunity to work on things that you really care about. I'm very lucky to have the opportunity to um, represent CCL because it is such an important issue that is near and dear to my, myself. Final question. Uh, lots of young people are listening to this. Lots of them are considering being volunteer lobbyists through Citizens Climate Lobby or other ways, and who knows, might even pursue a career in lobbying. Any tips or best practices you have for someone who's going to speak to a member of Congress in their state, locally, or nationally? Being informed, being polite, and really connecting the issues back to the state or district is always very important. Members of Congress get a lot of abuse sometimes. One of the reasons CCL has been so effective is we start from a place of respect and finding common ground. And that really makes it a lot easier to have a impactful, reasoned conversation with somebody. There are folks that like to approach these things much more aggressively, and that might have a certain place. But there's also a place for building bridges with folks that we don't necessarily agree with. All right, Ben, this was really great. Thanks a lot for this conversation. I'm a lot clearer and I can definitely attest you're not evil. It's really good talking to you, Peterson. All right, have a great day. That was Ben Pendergrass. He serves as CCL's Vice President of Government Affairs and is part of the Government Relations Team in Washington, D.C. And coming up... Our team of high schoolers will tell us about their successes in their positions as volunteer lobbyists. You will also learn about their roles and their strategies. Plus, advice for anyone wanting to engage in climate advocacy. Our guests today are four high school students who are doing climate advocacy. Sachi, Brianna, and Anna are from Washington State. Cole is all the way from the state of Maine. In order for them to be effective climate advocates, they need to be organized and disciplined. They take their roles and responsibilities much seriously than I ever did anything in high school. (laughs) Cole is the co-founder of Maine Youth Action. So we actually co-founded it, Anna Siegel and I, because we did some uh, divestment work, which is like divesting from fossil fuels in the uh, pension fund. So we co-founded the nonprofit so we can get more into like the, what they call like 501c4 work, which is like direct Mm -hmm. lobbying. So I've been involved since August of 2021. And we built it up to be a great organization so far definitely needs a lot more improvement, like logistically speaking, so we can have it go beyond ourselves, but very proud of it so far. Anna, along with Sachi and Brianna is part of Washington State's Citizens Climate Lobby Youth. My current position in CCL is the Washington Youth Team's statewide director. We're just like a really big chapter of high school youth and some middle schoolers too as well. And I got involved with CCL because I'd been working with my school's environmental club. And this was before the pandemic. And then once the pandemic happened, school kind of shut down. And then I wasn't really involved with the club anymore. And I was really interested and involved with it for a while. So I was hoping I could find a way to continue, even if it was from home. And that's kind of how I found CCL. And I really liked how CCL had a very specific goal. And I really liked the people I met. Actually, one of my first experiences was 
going to a lobby meeting with Adam Smith and Senator Patty Murray, just like the amount of training and the amount of support that CCL gave really made it so that I felt prepared. And then was initially involved with legislator outreach and outreach to organizations and businesses asking for endorsements for the Energy Innovation Act, but then stepped into the role of outreach director because we were still looking for more members. So there are a lot of open positions. Since then, really expanded the role to not only doing those types of advocacy calls, but also doing like youth programs with local libraries to talk about climate change. I was helping with recruitment just to expand the team. Sachi, who is now a high school junior, joined CCL Youth when she was 13. Well, I've been with the group since we first started back before COVID. I mainly work in social media. We kind of do outreach and also just, you know, keep people updated, gain a bigger following. We're really focused on getting more youth involvement in the climate crisis. So through our social media platforms, we're really trying to speak to them so that they can either join us in whatever project we're working on at the time or join our team for a longer term. After experiencing a flood in her area, Brianna knew she needed to get involved. You grow up and like you hear about all the California fires and etc. And then like when it happens to you, it's entirely different. Upon researching what exactly had happened, the causes behind it, it was essentially an atmospheric river, which was enhanced by climate change. In recent years, we've all sort of noticed how our weather has become more extreme living on the coast. Our weather is supposed to be much more moderate. And in recent years, that has just sort of diminished that. And I wanted to, you know, help advocate for our climate overall, but also specifically within like my region and like my area. And so what that has included is just like talking to local elected officials. I've had numerous meetings with Republicans and Democrats alike. Coming to them with this perspective of what it's like to have grown up in this environment. Both Washington CCL Youth and Maine Youth Action have experienced some great successes. Anna explains, though, the work is more than the successes that they rack up. It's about empowerment and growth. Sometimes we have projects that go really well and or like events that we host and a lot of people come, but then other times... They can't always be successful, obviously. So there have been a couple times where it's just been like a little bit disappointing. For me, the most important part is the number of people we impact, the lives we can change, especially because this is a team for high school youth who are deciding like what they want to do in their future as well. A big measure of success is for how we impact the members of the team. So I, I told you I was working on team recruitment and I really like didn't really think much of it. Like I thought that was just like, oh, this is part of running a team. But then later on, I would have people who joined the team because of these programs I arranged and tell me that being part of CCL has changed their lives and like has given them more confident in their speaking skills or made them more confident that people were just out there trying to work on this massive issue that sometimes seems like there's no progress happening. In addition to connecting with members of Congress, Sachi says CCL Youth also reaches out to fellow youth. The message that we're really trying to send out with all our work is that climate change is an issue, and it's an issue that every single person can be a part of. We can all make a difference if we do it together. 
something that's really been hitting with at least our audiences is that there's really no age to when you can start being more climate conscious. We often ask people to email, you know, your state representatives. Recently, we were asking people for support on the RISE Act. And so we posted about that act and asked our followers to send a quick email. We have the templates already made. When there's a lot of people that are sending those emails to people with political power, it shows how many people actually care, which can make a big difference, even though one email on its own might not. And in Maine, Cole and his fellow youth advocates have experienced legislative victories. In Maine, it's a unique dynamic. When I entered the scene, it was a Democratic trifecta. Uh, so I think at the time we had like 80 Democrats out of 151. We had almost a super majority in the Senate, which was like 23 or 24. Um, and then we also had the governor's uh, office. So it was a perfect time to introduce any ambitious policy on the environment. So getting involved is easy. Plus that there was a Democratic trifecta made an excellent uh, combo for success. And that's where things like divestment, which was one of our first successes, uh, was able to pass. And we were able to, I think, divest roughly three to $400 million in fossil fuel assets, which were in our $1.3 billion public pension fund. We have plenty of other successes that honestly, like, I don't want to take credit for all of them because it's a definitely more of a collaborative movement. But like, for example, the Pine Tree Amendment we've been working on diligently, and we've guaranteed a supermajority in the Senate, and we're working on the House votes right now. We focused on tribal sovereignty a lot, conservation, agriculture, and environmental action work. Now, I have to say, even with control of both chambers of Congress and the governor's office, Maine Youth Action and the other advocates still had a lot of hard work to do. But having that trifecta, no doubt, made it easier. So I asked Cole what he had to say to someone listening who lives in a state that does not have those favorable conditions. With the mixed legislatures, it honestly makes it a little bit more fun, right? And that's how you have to look at it, is that especially when you're one of these allegedly evil lobbyists, right? You're focusing on creating a coalition and you want it to be expansive and you want it to be broad. Like one thing that we've been focusing on recently for next session is public transportation. In Maine, 54% of emissions is transportation. What we've been ended up doing is that we've gotten state chamber involved, Maine Municipal Association, and a bunch of environmental groups. So we've had this progressive side and this extremely conservative side come together on an issue for different reasons. The environmental groups come for emissions. The state chamber comes for saving costs on transportation for the average worker. The Maine Municipal Association wants their cities represented in this discussion. And that's similar to a lot of other legislatures out there, Republican or Democrat. You just have to give them a, a reason that favors their interests. And that's a lot of why lobbyists are there, because you can have that public pressure, but you really need to have that pressure channeled into reason and rationale for each legislator so they can confirm their interests and why they have a stake in that cause or in that movement. And what stands out to me about these high school students is the way they encourage each other to do this work. It's so important because we all know climate work is not easy. Having a support system appears as key. Cole reminds us that as climate advocates, we have the power to reveal to lawmakers and fellow citizens the world is better off with climate solutions in place. You are trying to 
convey to people this narrative of like why this is important and why it needs to be solved or why it needs to be addressed. And that's exactly what the climate movement's about. And he has a word of encouragement for all of us. Keep moving on, you know? I feel like some people definitely get discouraged, and especially when something that's this existentialist where you're like feeling that you're crunched for time or that there's nothing left that you can do, just keep moving forward. What else do you have to lose? Many thanks to our guest, Anna Shia, Brianna Dulay, Sachi Sharma, and Cole Cochran. Thanks to Sue Nichols and Gwen Hansen for connecting us to these climate advocates. Oh, and thanks to Ben Pendergrass for revealing the secret world of lobbyists. And if you're inspired by the work these high school students are doing, you can join them in lobbying this June. The Citizens Climate International Conference and Lobby Day will be held June 10th to June 13th, 2023 in Washington, D.C. I'm going to be there. This year, you'll get to put everything you learn to use when you meet with members of Congress on Capitol Hill and talk to them about climate change. Registration is open now until May 21st. And to learn more and register, visit cclusa.org slash Conference. That's cclusa.org slash Conference. You for spending time with me here on Spirit in Action. Learn how you can contribute your time, expertise, and energy to addressing climate change. Visit cclusa.org. That's cclusa.org. And now it's back to Mark Helps Meet. Another great program, Peterson. The decades I've known you and your work have taught me to expect nothing but the best, and that's always what you deliver. We've got the links for Peterson Toscano and Citizens Climate Radio on northernspiritradio.org. So listen more and do more, and we'll all meet again here next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. And our lives will feel the echo of our healing.